Hey everyone in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Every week, Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us, and then I will lead you down the darker path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then Brian ends our podcast with a touch of the paranormal, a story about cryptids, or the creepier sides of life. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of you actually uh, messaged me and they said that they really enjoyed Glitch and having her on the podcast, but they missed Brian. <laughs> and what you bring to the podcast. So we're so happy to have you back. Oh, yay. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, now, this week in True Crime... I tried to find something that was killer related because that's my angle, but I just was inundated with stories about this case. And so, Brian, did you hear about the preacher from New York who was robbed during his sermon? No. Is that like sort of a joke or something? No, it's not. His name is Bishop Lamar Miller Whitehead, and he was live streaming his Sunday sermon, this is about a week ago, at the Leaders of Tomorrow International Church in Brooklyn, when he asked his congregation, how many of you have lost your faith because you saw somebody else die? Literally seconds later, three masked people armed with guns enter the church, and he's like, all right, all right, all right. And he gets down on like ground, lays on his stomach, this is on live stream. Like these clips are out there. One of the people stands over him, takes like things off of the pastor's body and they walk out and the pastor informed the police that that was over $1 million in jewelry that belonged oh. to both uh, pa- Bishop, Bishop Lamar and his wife. Wow. He's, Yes, yes, yes. NYPD uh, have been kind of released statements to the press. And I'm like, this is an ongoing investigation. No arrests were at least made by Monday of this week. Um, and of course, he's like, I want justice. I want these men arrested. But then, like, on social media, he was like, this is how the, de- the devil moves, you know. Um, and he offered a $50,000 award for the arrest and capture of these perpetrators. Buddy, these, these, they're done. Those diamonds are now in Canada. They're being broken down and which they will be sold in Europe. Like mm. there's nobody is pawning this in Brooklyn. Uh, it happened at like 11, 14 uh, a.m. And uh, the church is located in the Canarsie neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. They even have like uh, clips from outside of the church. Mm-hmm. Showing the guys like popping up in a car. Um, and I guess the, the bishop was really upset because he was like, they ripped my collar off to get to my jewelry. Oh, my um, God. Oh, my God. He says, I felt the demonic force. I felt it pushed through the door. Now, pause that because that, everybody feels, oh, well, that sucks. You know what I mean? But all, all across my timeline has been, have we? We've been saying eat the rich. But should we just rob churches um, I... for the poor? Like, because <laughs> obviously he is not giving to the poor. He I, I is mean, keeping it for himself. Yeah, churches don't, they don't pay, uh, was it taxes or something, right? No, you don't have to pay taxes. See, I'm like, so that yeah. property. Well, so here's the best thing about this. 
of course, this is all over the place. So today is the 29th when we're recording this. Mm. Yesterday, there's an article in the New York Post that says that apparently there was a lawsuit from one of his members of his congregation stating that he stole $90,000 from that man last year. And so apparently uh, around this area in Brooklyn, Bishop Lamar Whitehead is known for wearing Gucci suits, diamond encrusted chains, has loads of luxury vehicles, and he has an extensive history of stealing from his congregation. He's been in prison for identity theft and grand larceny. Um, the wow. woman who uh, filed a lawsuit, her name was Pauline Anderson, and um, she said that he convinced her to liquidate her life savings and invest $90,000 in November of 2020, which, of course, didn't happen. Um, n- nothing in, It was invested into nothing. He was like, I will invest this into real estate. And uh, then we can buy and renovate a better home for you. Mind you, in New York City, Hmm. where it's like $3,000 for a studio apartment. So buying property in New York costs a lot more than 90K. Um, And she also, uh, apparently, he also agreed to pay her $100 per month. To like help her since that savings was her only source of income. She's fifty six, so I guess she was retired, and that was supposed to be like her her life money. Um, instead, he used that ninety thousand dollars for a, a down payment towards the four point four million dollar home that he bought for himself in Saddle River, New Jersey. Bro, um, that is still like ongoing. But obviously they are pulling apart this man's. And the worst part about this is I'm going to send you this link and you can see um, like they show like the church trash. It looks horrible. Like normally when people are like these mega church guys are making all this money, the place looks beautiful. Yes. Not this one, huh? No. And I'm like, how are y'all giving money to this this? He is a fraud. And a fake. I bet you as they continue pulling up, there are more people from his congregation who he just flat out robbed. I, I can see that happening very soon. And what if he just like I'm had not like super religious, but I'm like, listen, this is not a man of God, y'all. You need to no. find better people to follow because this this ain't it. This he's not it. Yeah. I'm just now I'm just thinking like maybe he just had he just found a rundown church and then he just like, hmm, I know what I'm gonna do here. And, and just so, like, well, here's the, so here's the part. So that like 4.4 million house, that sale didn't go through. Um, and that, and so that's how um, Pauline learned about it. Essentially, um, he accidentally sent an email to her son, Rashid Anderson, about the purchase of the property. I guess he, her son must have like worked with the church or something. And uh, but he eventually used that money for a four point five million dollar apartment complex in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so he's trying to move mm. and leave the ghetto. Uh, I don't, actually, I don't know if Canarsie is that much of a ghetto. I just know that what happened here was a little bit ghetto. Uh, and I feel bad. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, but it, he got like a he has like a a little mini mansion, and so Pauline is seeking one million dollars in damages for his morally reprehensible acts and for stealing her entire life savings. Um, yeah. Obviously, the case is still pending because that was filed in 2020 when everything was a mess, and honestly, courts are still backed up uh, because while they're handling old cases, new cases are coming up. Oh my um, god! Just adding more. So I'm I'm thinking that this is going to be an update as like apparently he has defended his lifestyle very aggressively saying that um his public displays of wealth didn't lead to this robbery um and like people are like you sure your giant blinged out cross didn't make you a target it's massive it's easily like the size of the palm of an adult person's hand oh my god and it's square in the middle of his chest that's what they ripped off his neck and i was just like sir they they stole his rolex seventy five thousand dollars i'm like you're supposed to be a man of the people you you're not giving jesus this was not giving Jesus. No, he was giving to himself. He's a man hey, to, listen, of himself. I feel like Jesus would have walked in your church. And robbed your ass. And too. robbed you and threw everything on the floor like he did with the tax collectors. But that's all I got for you today. I was oh just my God. rolling at the update. I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course I knew he was a con man. I just didn't know he was like that level of a con man. I thought it was like he was, you know, little bits of money. The yeah. natural way that churches make a bajillion dollars. But his church isn't the one making the money. It's just him. It's just him. With his scheming and scamming and stuff. Mm-hmm. God. Oh. Well, that was a ride. I liked it. <laughs> okay. So, for this story, for my story this week, it's also an update. Okay. So... About seven months ago, um, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, uh, about four men were um, arrested Mm -hmm. um, with uh, a conspiracy to kidnap, um, resulting in the death and kidnapping, um, and they charged with like murder for hire, basically. Was this Um, the guys who were trying to kill that senator? No, not this one. (laughs) Because they didn't um, actually kidnap her. They just planned it out. Yeah. So seven months ago, they were indicted on you know on this. <clears throat> okay. But this happened back in 2020. Um, oh, okay. So 47-year-old Eric Charles Mond, and he he's like the, the main person in this, but there are like three other guys. All right. I'll they're they're all... There. Um, two of them were also like around Eric's age, 48, 47. There's a 31 year old too. Um, so what happened is that Eric hired, you know, these guys to kidnap and possibly murder his mistress and her boyfriend. Oh, yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. She yeah. already moved on, and you want to kill her? Well, it's his mistress. Not, I guess, not his ex-mistress. No, his, she's his ex-mistress now, but you know what I mean. Um, well, she, she had a new it, boyfriend, so why was he even bothering anymore? Well, I. Mm. Uh. <laughs> There's probably some context we're not going to get until this it, is on TV. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. 
Okay, so Mond, he, he would, I guess, he lived, they, they all, I guess it was the Texas thing. Um, and it, it was all Texas area, I should say. And he would drive to Nashville to visit, I guess, a relative. And oh. in, in early February 2020, uh, he emailed a woman later who was in, identified as his mistress. Uh, his mistress's name was Holly Williams, and she was 33 years old. And she had a 36-year-old um, boyfriend. His name was William Lanway. Okay. So he, you know, he started this affair with her by, you know, emailing her um, to, to see her when he was, you know, coming to visit. Okay. And, um, so how did we get to kill her and her boyfriend? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) This is the part. So after he visited, blah, 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 um, Mond, he receives this text message from Lanway, who was uh, William's boyfriend. Okay. And he's like, if you, if you don't pay me, I will. He, he basically, uh, Landway tried to, you know, blackmail oh, okay. him, saying, if you don't pay me, I'm going to expose this whole relationship. And um, He's not very good at having an affair if all these people can find out details about it. I know, right? It's really bad. <laughs> That's okay. All right, then. So, Vaughn's like, all right, you know what? No, this ain't going to happen. So, he um, got these three guys to assist him with dealing with the threats from Landway. And this happened on March 5th, 2020. Uh, He took out $15,000 from his bank account. And yeah. Serious business. Yeah. 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 And um, I guess they, they stalked uh, Miss Holly Williams for a while uh, $8,000 in cash was allegedly a deposit into some spear tip security business okay. uh, account, as well as like $7,000 was uh, added to one of the other guys, the, the other hitman, uh, his account. So on March 12th, Mon, he said he allegedly, well, allegedly transferred $150,000 into a bank account. And which belonged to, um, I'm going to say his name is Peld. That's his, that's how his name is Peld. Um, and I'm pretty sure this guy was like the main, <clears throat> the main hitman. So he was the boss hitman with these other guys. Um, so after, after this money is transferred to his account on the same day, his two henchmen, um, Brockway and Carey, they confronted Williams and Landway in a parking lot, and they shot Landway multiple times, and then they kidnapped Holly Williams, and they reportedly drove her and Landway to a construction site, mm-hmm. which is uh, it's called Old Hickory Boulevard, before they murdered her there as well. Wow. Yeah, um... So both bodies, they, they were discarded. And then um, they, they were just, and then. <sighs> All right. Well, I guess well they're. Yeah. Um, so 
apparently between March 11th and then the, right now, uh, $750,000 was transferred by Mond to Peld, Brockway, and Carey for their crimes. <clears throat> all right. And then I guess they, they were all, they were all arrested December 10th, 2021. Um, okay. And yeah, it's I guess Mond was like uh, he was a partner at the at the Mond Automotive Automotive Group in Austin. So he worked at this this car place. So very, he, you know, he, he was well known in the area. I'm assuming so that's why the the threats were getting to him. He's like, I can't just go and ruin my business. I can't let these people ruin my business, my car business. I'm gonna have to kill them. Um, I, it doesn't say when, like, how they were arrested, and you know how people found out about that they did this. Um, but yeah, like December tenth, twenty twenty one, please pick them up on you know on these charges. And now the thing is that this update. Is that mm-hmm. there are still like there's still things coming out like he he's uh he's facing even like more charges have come in, have come up um he let me see he's trying now now what it is is that he tried to have one of the co-conspirators one of the the uh, the, the hitmen um he tried to he tried to make arrangements from prison from prison to hire uh, to hire somebody else to oh, um, <laughs> no way to to kill one of the co-conspirators yes wow. yes um <laughs> I was like, so you just you, you you haven't learned, have you? You haven't learned anything. They really just think they can get away with everything. Yeah, <clears throat> I forget who, which one is it that he tried to get killed? <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know. I think it's uh, no, it doesn't say. It doesn't say which one. It just says co-conspirator. Sheesh. And then it just goes over the whole case again, what happened, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it started getting wild after I started, as, after I read it, and I was like, what, you try to get somebody else killed at, while he's in prison? Okay, all right, buddy. <sighs> but yeah, um, <laughs> that's what I got. All right. Well, <laughs> Yeah. I guess. Okay. (laughs) Usually we give our cousins in Canada props for doing the right thing when it comes to killers. But um, this week we're going to talk about a serial killer who had a particularly lengthy, uh, horrible criminal history and still somehow managed to get released 
a comical amount of times to go on to kill 11 teens and children that we know of. Uh, his name was Clifford Olson Jr. And they called him the Beast of British Columbia. Um, this week, there's so much with this man's life that I had to break this up. I told just for you listening, uh, there are like 28 written pages of content about him that I did. Uh, so I, I cut off this week at his 40th birthday from the time that he was 17 years old to the time that he was 40. He only spent 1500 days out of prison. There are a lot of arrests that we're going to have to talk about today, but we always have to start at the beginning. And so Clifford Olson Jr. was born January 1st, 1940 to Clifford and Leona Olson. He was their first son. And back in the 1940s, when babies were born on the new year, they would usually hand out silver spoons or cases of canned milk. But because Clifford was born at 10 o'clock at night and his mom had been in labor all day, all the baby prizes had already been handed out. But he did get his name put in the local paper as a New Year's baby. The family went back to where they lived in Pacific National Exhibition Grounds in Vancouver, British Columbia. They had a pretty small home that got filled very quickly. Within the first three years of his life, he got two brothers, Richard and Dennis, and a baby sister, Sharon. And they were only living off of one income, so it was already pretty tough. Uh, But Leona did her best. Like many families who have lots of kids, they all grew up wearing the older kids' hand-me-downs and patching knees and trying to make clothes last for as long as possible. Clifford Sr. worked as a milkman, and he actually was one of the last people to drive a horse-drawn cart and deliver milk to people's homes. Uh, he, yeah, he would have been part of the, the last men of the era to do so. Even though, uh, eventually though, that gets phased out and he starts doing odd jobs, becomes a construction laborer for a local build site. Um, they were kind of, though, still kind of just living your typical suburban life, even though money's a little tight. And that is until World War II. Uh, It kind of changed everything for the family. Now, unlike what happened in the United States, which is that America attempted to be uninvolved in the conflict for as long as possible, Canada did not do that. Uh, They immediately went to aid Britain in the war against the Axis powers. And at first that was just aid, but eventually they were drawn into the official conflict when their shipping avenues were attacked by German U-boats. So Clifford Sr. was a stand-up guy and he felt this calling to help his country and he signed up. Uh, He didn't want to just sit and lay bricks uh, while his fellow countrymen were dying. And during his time in World War II, there were times where he was allowed to come back home and stop in with his children. But pretty much the first like four or five years of all of the kids' lives, he just wasn't around very often. Um, For Clifford Jr., his father was kind of a myth. He was this incredible man. He was a soldier out fighting in the war. And... By the time World War II was over, Clifford was about five years old. And Clifford Sr. was no longer as sprightly and excited. One could say he was a shadow of a man. Um, he came back home from the war and he was like, you know what? I just, I don't even want to do anything even remotely violent anymore. I want to be home. I want to have a home and be happy. Now, very much like in the United States, there was a program to give mortgages to veterans. And the same thing. Um, it was actually a much more extensive program than what the U.S. offered because, uh, well, Canada wasn't dealing with the anti-black racism that the U.S. was at the time. 
But the Olsen family decided to take up that offer to get a better home. <coughs> and they moved to a much bigger city named Richmond. And Richmond was booming because a lot of veterans were taking their version of the GI Bill and moving there. And the place was building houses, or more so, bringing in people faster than they could build houses. And Clifford Sr. is like, one, able to get a home very early on, and a relatively large one. Uh, and he's immediately able to get a job since a lot of skilled laborers died in World War II, and he already had a background in construction. So at least for the, the family, the, the, the fifth year of Clifford's life starts out pretty, pretty nice. Mm-hmm. As for Clifford, uh, things begin to go sour when he starts school in the fall. He was a short, stocky little boy, and since he'd only really lived with his younger siblings and his mom for so long, he hadn't really been socialized to like deal with a lot of different people. Um, in Richmond, most of the kids knew each other and had, you know, since the daycare days. So Clifford was definitely outside, and a lot of the kids ignored him. And at first, Clifford kind of shut down. Um, you know, he would come home and he would be upset and his mom would try and figure out what was wrong. Within that first week, though, five-year-old Clifford decided that, well, you can't ignore me if I punch you. <laughs> and he began picking fights with other kindergartners. And that was that was the path that he'd chosen, and now the kids had a reason not to want to be around him. And he started not just fighting kids his own age, but older. And he always lost. Oh, no. So he became like this kind of joke among the kids at school, which only made him want to fight more. And it was pretty common for his mom to patch or repair his clothes almost daily. And if there was a day he didn't come home with a black eye or a bruise, it was a friggin' miracle. That reputation followed him into elementary school. He didn't get good grades, and his teachers tried to help. But Clifford never really did more than the bare minimum, which was showing up and sitting in the chair. His parents got used to a lot of letters home every quarter saying he's at risk of failing. Not at this point. He's in early elementary school, and his brothers come to school too, and the teachers are shocked. They assumed all the Olsen kids were going to be terrible after their experience with Clifford. But the two brothers, Dennis and Richard, pop up and they are excellent students and never get in trouble. So it kind of almost makes it worse for Clifford because now they're like, why can't you be like your brothers? You know how that goes. Nobody yep. likes hearing that in school. <laughs> nope. And so as Clifford Jr. is entering middle school, Clifford Sr. <laughs> leaves construction and gets a job as a property manager. And this is great. This gives him all this time and more money. And he's like, now that we're financially stable, I'm going to invest this time and money into my children. Unlike almost every true crime dad we have ever discussed, (laughs) Clifford Sr. wanted to encourage his kids in a way that he had never had as a child. The family loved it. The kids loved it, except for Clifford Jr., who was a total buzzkill. And so, like, the thing was, if you showed interest in, like, anything, Clifford Sr. was like, all right, let's go do this. So if, like, 
one of the boys was like, oh, well, I, I want to, you know, learn about science. He's like, bet, let's go to the science museum. And Clifford Jager went along, but he didn't like it. And if somebody was like, I really like uh, music. He's like, awesome. I'll take you to go see people play violin or play piano. Mm. Uh, Clifford went along, but he didn't seem to like it. So one day when Clifford Jr. is about 12, his dad gets tickets to a boxing match. And he's just like, I'm going to take him. Leona is not into this. But Clifford Sr. is like, what if, you know, we could find one activity that will help with his attitude? And so he kind of like against his wife's wishes, uh, takes him to this boxing match and he sneaks him in. And from the moment they arrive, Clifford Jr. is into it. He joins in with the crowd with the jumping and the screaming and the clapping. Clifford Sr. is like, found it, the thing my kid likes. And so just like he did with the other kids, he take like days after this, Clifford Jr. is like talking about, and you know, and then this happened, he's telling everybody about it. So Clifford Sr. takes him to a boxing gym. And it was one of those old school ones with the sawdust floor and the big heavy leather bags, and it was full of ex soldiers <clears throat> and old timers who just needed to get some you know, energy <clears throat> out. Mm-hmm. And he signs his short, chubby son up for lessons. And Clifford Jr. is a natural in the ring. Leon is not too excited about it, but this was the first time they had really ever seen their son happy ever. No. And one day when he goes to pick up Clifford Jr., um, Sr.'s just kind of sitting outside in the car, and the coach is like, hey, I think he's good enough to enter a competition. And Clifford Sr. is like, are you just kind of like, you know, uh, smoke up my ass. Yeah. <clears throat> you, so you could, you could get me to pay for more lessons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the coach is like, no, I'm serious. Come inside and look at him. He's in the ring right now. And so he walks in and sees his son just, you know, ducking, diving, throwing punches. Like he's, he's bouncing around the ring like lightly and like, He's all right. He's like, all right. Um, And so the two of them, while he's finishing up his fight, are talking about, you know, specialized diets, training schedules. Maybe one day he can be in the Olympics. Like around this time, boxing was huge across the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, the U.S., we had Muhammad Ali. Like everybody had their person. And like this was a huge thing. Of course, so far, like all of our stories involving Clifford, things shift. Clifford Jr. just one day quits boxing pretty abruptly. See, he had a plan. All those kids who'd been whooping him for the last six years, he had an Arya Stark-like list, and he intended to make all of them pay. So he systematically starts showing up at these kids' homes and knocking them all out. What? Like, legit, <laughs> you beat my ass in kindergarten, <clears throat> pop, knocked oh him out right God. in their front yards. Payback is... And as he started taking these kids out one by one, all the way up to the older kids who bullied him and knocking them out too, his reputation changes. He's not a loser anymore. Now he's a bully. Hmm. See, as far as Clifford Jr. was concerned, his dad wanted him to be the best in the world, and Clifford just wanted to be the best in the school. He'd still show up at the gym and, like, spar with folks, but it was only to stay sharp. He does make some friends, but most of his friends right now are just people who want to stay in his good graces and not get knocked (laughs) out. (laughs) 
most were a little bit older and already involved in like the criminal element in town. And somewhere around late middle school, early high school is when Clifford discovers that he has a gift. See, all throughout his early childhood, he was like aggressively unhappy about rejection. And his new friends taught him that, listen, rejection isn't the end of the world. You can, you can get past that. You just, cause he saw his friends. Cause you know, he's getting into girls and things right now. Mm-hmm. And like, he's terrified to even talk to a girl. And his friends are like, listen, she says no to you. Who cares? And so he's like, he gets over that mental block of being rejected by everyone. And all of a sudden he can talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. And he starts taking notes from his <clears throat> friends who were doing kind of little cons and he noticed that they were really slick and they never made any mistakes and that he was going to be better than they were. And when I, I bring that up because the thing is, when somebody is just too good, Brian, they're just giving you, it's too, too perfect. Do you believe them? No. Exactly. Absolutely so that's not. what he noticed watching his friends who were doing cons was that they were actually being too good. And so he realized that if he could strategically show a weakness, that would make people trust him more, like make himself the butt of a joke, laugh along with it. And then that lowered people's defenses. And then he could actually con them, rob them, convince them to give him things. Mm -hmm. His reputation for being a bully never really left. Um, Like he got to the point with his ability to like talk, kind of smooth was that instead of walking up to a kid at school and punching them to steal their money he would pretty much kind of coerce them into giving it up um, and he actually loved that idea that he didn't have to to he could get what he wanted without violence okay and this goes on until he's about 16 years old at that point he's like i feel like i have everything i need to be successful in life Um, And honestly, he'd been skipping school pretty aggressively since he was about 10 years old. So when he just stopped showing up at Cambridge Junior High in 1956, they were like, okay. I'm sure some of his teachers were probably pretty happy to realize he wasn't coming back. (laughs) However, his parents are like, listen, you got to go to school. But this very quiet kind of morose child didn't exist anymore and his parents are like well he's here he's become this charming young man who says he doesn't want to go to school anymore but also says he has a plan and he told his parents he's like listen we all know I'm not going to college why should I spend the next two years trying to make good grades for college that I'm not going to I could just go and start making money now and his parents are like you know that does make sense but you got to get a job like now mm-hmm. The same day his parents told him, you got to go get a job. He walked into the old Lansdowne racetrack and talked them into giving him a job. Oh, damn. Okay. What he was going to do was take bets from the patrons at the racetrack. And that involved him kind of walking around and talking to people. And, of course, his his gift really helps. You know, he's like, oh, who do you think is going to win? And he would kind of nudge them toward the wrong choice so that the track collected more money and then he started making his own bets on the side to make money off of their bad bets and his employer didn't care because they were making money heads over you know fist over, what is it hand over fist yes 
And if anybody got mad at Clifford for luring them into a bad investment, yeah, he wasn't super tall, but he was still pretty stocky and he absolutely could knock you out. It's kind of the first time in Clifford's life he's got a lot of money and he's feeling pretty great about it. He very quickly uh, decided that he could do better, though. So he went back to a lot of his friends from high school. Many of them had also quit school. And uh, he's like, listen, you guys always have money. What are you doing to make all this money? And they were like, I mean, we, we do some things that are pretty bad, but we could use some muscle. We'll pay you to keep us safe as a lookout. And he does that at first, but very quickly he's like, I, I need to do more. And so he keeps the job at the track so that he has a day job that makes sense for his parents. But then at night, he starts going to the bar and listening to the hot gossip. Then he heads out in the street for what he feels is his real job. And uh, in the beginning, that was robbing drunks, stealing their wallets, mugging people. Sometimes he was so successful at talking people out of their money, they didn't even report him to the police. Okay. Nice. From, From muggings, he moves into burglary. And the people who were teaching him how to burglarize were actually pretty bad at their job to the point where Clifford improved upon their method and, and just wasn't getting caught. He was smart, calculated, athletic, and unlike many of the people committing these jobs, he wasn't an addict. So he wasn't hindered by the fact that he was under the influence like they were. So what he started doing is he would watch people while they were at the track and he would you know, take bets and he would pick up the high spenders, keep an eye on them, especially if they won. You got to put down your information and now he knows where they live. And then he would hit their house later. And he was doing it so well that the police actually thought that this was a new gang. Um, Or even the mob moving into town, even though there were no real patterns to it, the police did come up with a way that was successful. Uh, Unfortunately, his methodology is what got him caught. Essentially, a lot of people who rob will go back to an easy spot over and over again, and that's how they get caught. And Clifford noticed that. So he was like, I'm only going to hit these people once, and then I'll move to a different, you know, I'll go to a different location. And so what the police did was they kind of plotted all of his burglaries. And, like, at this point, we're talking about well over 30. And so they're plotting them out, and they go, we're just going to wait where he hasn't gone yet. And one night, cops saw him climbing into a window. (coughs) Clifford's family is very upset. Clifford Sr. refuses to speak to him at all, won't visit him in prison, won't post his bail, or contact anybody who could post it. His mom pretty much relayed information between dad and son. And despite the fact that Clifford Sr. was mad at him, he didn't want his kid to go to jail forever, just a little bit. Right. This was the first, yeah, it was the first time he'd ever been in trouble. So they spent all their savings and they got him a really good lawyer to try and keep him out of prison for a long amount of time. So here's the thing. Clifford's, Clifford Jr.'s lawyer is like, listen, he's underage. He's only 17. And the police are like, he's robbed 15 to 30 houses. But the problem is they couldn't prove that it was him who did all the other ones. Yes, it matched a pattern, but they searched the entire Olsen house and found only cash. There were no items that had belonged to any of the houses that had been hit. And that's because Clifford had a solid set of people he fenced stolen goods to. And he would take the items directly from the the job to the fence. 
so that he never had the items on him for longer than an hour or so. Oh, damn. He's smart. Okay. And the judge is definitely like, I understand what you're saying, but you're not giving me what I need for a conviction here. Mm-hmm. And so the judge is like, maybe we can do like a little scared straight situation here. So they sent him to the New Haven Borstal Correctional Center in Burnaby to serve nine months until he turns 18. Um, Clifford isn't into New Haven. It was everything he hated about school and also he couldn't leave. Guards and teachers controlled virtually every moment of the students' lives. Anytime he felt like he could relax, he was being watched. And the thing is, Clifford's a smart kid. He could have done what the judge wanted him to do. He might not have been a good student, but he wasn't a stupid guy. Thing is, Clifford's still kind of angry. Despite the fact that, like, all of the, the, the things that bothered him when he was very young, he has absolutely overcome and bested all of it. He's still mad. And he's got this sense of teenage rebellion. Plus, he really doesn't like when people have more power than him. He feels like they're picking on him. Mm-hmm. And so he spends a lot of those nine months focusing on revenge. Interestingly enough, despite the fact that Clifford is at a completely different school area, his reputation of being a terrifying child extends into the facility. He's still buff, um, and he verbally lashes out at people. In a, like He cuts them down, just publicly humiliates them. And he's physically stronger than a lot of them. And so... Very quickly, people learn not to mess with him. And then one night in the dorm, he witnesses a rape. And for most people, that would be a horrifying experience. But Clifford is like, that's another way to humiliate and control people. Mm-hmm. And so he goes and he talks to the other rapist. And he's like, I would like to be a part of this. And the other boys were like, well, you're the oldest and the biggest. So sure. And they pretty much give him his choice of victims. Um, pretty much the most feminine-looking younger boys were set aside specifically for him, though he did allow some of his friends in his little rape clique to violate them as well. By the time he left New Haven, there wasn't another kid there who was less like. Like, the other students, the staff, hated. And the best thing about Clifford is that two months before he's supposed to leave... Mind you, his sentence was only nine months. So seven months into his sentence, he's like, you know what? I'm tired of being here. I'm just going to leave. And so one day he noticed that one of the trees near the like wall, like the stone wall around the building, uh, had grown a bit too high and hadn't been pruned properly. And so he straight up climbs the tree, is over the wall and in the woods followed a road and heads back to Richmond before people are even aware he's gone. By the time they set off the alarms and the policemen show up, he's a solid distance away. The police, of course, go to the Olsen home and they're like, we, he wouldn't come here. He knows we turn him in. He stops in Richmond long enough so he can grab cash from the people who owed him some money. And then he goes and tries to steal a boat. And I say tries to steal a boat. He, he kind of steals it. So he doesn't know how to work a, a boat. So when the police get to the dock, he's he's turned it on, and that's about it. Uh, and he figures out how to make it move at the, the highest speed, and he just goes. He is barely avoiding 
many of the obstacles in the river. The police show up in their boats and they chase him and then they fire a warning shot. And he cuts off the motor, stands up, and puts his hand in the air. They drag him to shore, arrest him again. And while they're, you know, shackling him, the police said that he started laughing and said, you spent your whole night chasing a free man. My birthday's in a couple week, weeks. I'll be back on the street anyway. Turns out that's a bad thing to say to the police because yeah. they relayed that information to the judge. And the judge was like, nah, you get two more years. No parole. Don't doesn't he didn't he hear his Miranda rights? Like whatever you say can be used against you. Yeah, well, like I said, he's street smart, not necessarily other smart, but the judge also decided that he can't be trusted to stay at the facility for children. So he's being sent to an adult prison this time. And that prison is called the Haney Correctional Facility. I'm going to give you a heads up that this is one of the first of many prisons this man spends the next 30 years in and out of. Haney Prison uh, opened in 1957. It was based on rehabilitation. The idea is they were going to push these really positive social values and behavior and provide a training program. Um, it closed in 1975, and that's not how it ended. Clifford arrives in 1958. And despite their very noble and idealistic principles they built this prison on, it's still a pretty depressing place. I think, honestly, all prisons are depressing. It was very different from Borstal. He wasn't the top dog anymore. And the things that had given him respect among children at the other facility just didn't exist here. Of course, as soon as he starts at, arrives at Haney, he's picking fights. And that did give some prisoners the idea that they couldn't you know, mess with him. But right. it still wasn't anything like before. He didn't really have a place in the prison hierarchy. And people kind of just left him alone. He did um, rape other inmates. Um, but he couldn't control them like he had done with the younger boys. Also, in Haney, the guards were constantly on him, probably because they had been told that he escaped from his last facility. Um, Haney had a really strict schedule for everybody. That's how prison is, like mealtimes, you know. But for Clifford, it was actually worse. If he wasn't at work or at eating, he was confined to his cell. He wasn't allowed to, like, have, like, the free time like everybody else had. And there were plenty of instances where Clifford would try and fight the guards, like, physically, as they were trying to put him back in his cell after an activity. This, of course, only makes the guards treat you worse, and it's written down in your record. Clifford just didn't like the fact that people demanded he had to be at a certain place at a certain time. And I, I get that because that's literally prison and why everybody hates it. I'm like, that's, uh, that's me. You don't get to make the rules anymore. Well, it's good that you've never been in prison. I know. Because I'd it's be pissed. not the place for you. I'd be pissed. I'm like, what? I gotta be where? What time? Damn, come on. They wake up at 5 a.m. in jail. That's awful. Mm-mm. No, thank you. So eventually, though, he did earn a little bit of respect from the guards once he stopped fighting them so much. And when he does that, they give him a little bit more freedom. There he was able to start talking to some of the other prisoners and put his charismatic skills to good use. He starts listening when people are talking in groups and he just sits there and learns. And then he starts dropping that information to the guards about drugs that were being sold in the prison or things that were being smuggled in. And of course, as soon as the 
as soon as the guards get this information, they crack down on things and they were very happy to erase some of the dark marks on Clifford's record. Hmm. This is a very dangerous line that he's crossing. But the prisoners don't find out that he's the reason why things get locked down. The things are being removed from the prison that are contraband. And within a little bit over a year, they release him on good behavior because of the snitching. So it's 1959. He's 19 years old now. And as soon as he's free, he goes back to doing exactly the same stuff he was doing before. The main problem is the most of his old contacts are either in prison themselves or no longer in the criminal world. His fence, who had a bunch of his money, I mean, at this point, it had been three years. So that guy was long gone. He really had nothing. And so he goes home and he begs Leona and Clifford for a chance. And they're like, fine, you can sleep here. But they don't really trust him. His brothers and sisters are kind of doing their best in school and not following in their big brother's footsteps. Mm-hmm. Now, despite the fact that the judge said no to parole, Clifford got parole. So he had some probationary conditions. One of which is that he wasn't allowed to leave British Columbia. He had to report any change of address to the police immediately. And of course, when you're on probation, despite being free, you still feel kind of confined. And uh, coincidentally, the day that he reported moving to New Westminster into one of those crap apartments that rents out beds to people and has as many people in it as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much illegal housing, but that's what he moved to. The police showed up that day because there had been burglaries in New Westminster. Uh, very quickly, a local pawn shop reported to the police that some of those missing items had been pawned there. And, of course, the person who had pawned it was Clifford Olson Jr. And within weeks of being released, he is back in jail again, awaiting trial. Ah, goodness. And there is none of that. Oh, he's just a young boy. He needs another chance. No. The court-appointed <laughs> attorney could not do anything for him. He's a career criminal at 19. Open mm. and shut, 10 years. Also, they're like, you're going to British Columbia Penitentiary, which is maximum security. And while Haney had not been the most positive, positive place they wanted it to be it was leaps and bounds better than british columbia penitentiary bcp was built in 1878 it looks like a giant foreboding castle which is super interesting because eastern state penitentiary is in philadelphia mm-hmm. also looks like a giant foreboding castle i'm you like why was like this the look for jails at the time <laughs> the, the 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 county prison in lancaster it looks yes, like a yes, castle. It looks like a giant foreboding. Um, <laughs> the, well, at least the one part. They've changed like the one part to make it more modern. But the, the intake area, the yeah. front of it, looks like a giant castle. Like this was very much a thing we did in the 1800s, <laughs> early 90s. Um, interesting enough, in BCP's history, there had been riots in the 30s that were due to them not paying prisoners for their labor. Um, And it actually ended up with Canada completely reforming prison labor laws um, because of it. Now, eventually, BCP will get decommissioned in 1980 before our boy Clifford left it. Um, It was one of the most dangerous prisons in Canada, mainly because of the people who were there. The guards and the inmates are in a constant battle of wills. Clifford walks into an environment that is on 
edge. And Clifford is placed in a cell with serial rapist Gary Marco. Gary was known for a lot of sexual aggression among the other prisoners, which mostly went unchecked. And so the guards assume that Clifford is going to immediately get sexually assaulted by Gary. But something else happens. He becomes his friend. And he straight up plays his roommate. Like, you know, I'm the new guy. I just want to learn what this place is like. And eventually he gets Gary to confess about the rape and murder of a little girl that the police hadn't been able to attach him to. So, of course, he immediately waggles that information in front of the guards who put him in the room with the warden. And the warden's like, listen, this means nothing. Jailhouse confession means absolutely nothing. Uh, If you can give us some evidence. Then we can talk about it. (laughs) Got to be someone that's admissible in court. So over the next couple of months, Clifford is just trying to maintain this friendship with Gary, but also trying to push him for details. And in the end, it's not his his gift to talk that gets the confession. See, BCP has a bustling illegal alcohol ring at the time. And Clifford exchanged a couple favors with people and he got himself some hooch. And he shared it with his roommate. In fact, he gave most of it to Gary after lights out as Clifford didn't really drink that much. And he coerces Gary into writing down a confession and signing it while he's drunk. Gary passes out. And when he wakes up, he expects to see Clifford also hungover, but his cellmate's not there. And so he remembers this confession and rips the cell apart looking for it. He, look, he talks to the other inmates and they're all like, oh, Clifford's in solitary. We don't know why. We just woke up and he's in solitary confinement. And they said he's going to be there for a really long time. So the next couple of hours, the police show up and pull Gary out of prison. And they t- also take Clifford out and they're both held at a different location um, until the court date. They show up and Gary intends to say, oh, he made it all up. It was a lie. But Clifford gets the chance to speak first at court. And he tells a true story of what happened. He's like, listen, we both got really drunk and he admitted everything to me. And I told him that it would make him feel better if he wrote it down. And that, of course, you know, he had to add a little flavor to it and say, you know, I had to give this to the warren because I just couldn't sleep in the same room as someone who did such a horrible thing to a little girl. Oh, my God. Of course. Yes. Gary, of course, tries to discredit Clifford on the stand. And it all falls flat because Gary Marco is already a convicted rapist. And Clifford's only a burglar. He'd never hurt anybody that they know about. The lawyers try to prove that Clifford's lying. But essentially, because Clifford got on the stand and admitted to committing a crime that would technically add more time to his sentence, it made his story more credible. Right. Yeah, the drinking. Like, technically, he admitted to something that it was a, a crime. Yeah, I'm definitely, like, even if it wasn't that, like, in real, because like, I, I, he's, I don't know, the, I think the age for alcohol is, like, 18 in Canada, but the issue is that I don't think anywhere you're allowed to just make your own your own hooch no. in the bathroom. <laughs> I think that violates a bunch of laws, too. But either way, this changes Gary Marco's sentence from 25 years to a full life sentence and he gets transferred to a different prison so that Clifford can go back to British Columbia. Very quietly, the warden reduces Clifford's sentence. Now he only has to do two and a half more years. 
He's only spent like six months in prison at this point, so it's not a bad deal. And he's pretty excited about it when he gets to the prison. But then the truth of what happened begins to go around. And of course, the other prisoners are like, oh, you're not trustworthy. Yeah. And they started getting pretty hostile. Spitting on him as he walks past the cells, pushing him in the line, dinner line, threatening to kill him. You sided with the police. That's unforgivable. Since Clifford is entrusted by the inmates, he couldn't get close enough to them to get the gossip to give to the guards. And without that information, the guards don't really care about him anymore. Pretty much he realizes that he only has two and a half years left, but they're going to suck really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing that worried Clifford the most, though, was that there was always this strange undercurrent of unhappiness and anger in the prison. And he was worried that when the violence happened, he was going to be on the side of people getting hurt. So one day there's a small prison uprising. And I actually looked up all the prison uprisings. This wasn't considered to be big enough for them to report it. Uh, they weren't all that uncommon. Uh, you know, inmate throws something or gets an aggressive with a guard. Other people join in. And so the guards rush to that special room to grab their riot gear, break up the chaos, and it all goes back to normal. But essentially what Clifford does is when the guards rush to the gear room, he sort of hides in the shadows and he waits until they're all geared up. And before the door can close, he slips through and walks out of the prison. Because the guards all rush to the area where the trouble was. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Like I said, this wasn't one of the major riots, but it was big enough that it took them a couple of days to figure out where everybody was. They Usually when there's a riot, though, the leaders of the rebellion get moved, taken to court, um, injured guards, injured inmates that couldn't be fit in the infirmary, have to go to local hospitals. Finally, after like two or three days, they're just like, we're missing somebody. We're missing Clifford Olson. And at first they were kind of confused because they're like, wait, there's no way. You just dropped his 10-year sentence down to two. Who would risk all that with an Clifford. escape? <laughs> Clifford would. In fact, at first the police are like, are you sure you just didn't lose him through paperwork? Like maybe he's at another prison and he got moved around when everybody else got moved around. And so they go and check with other facilities and finally they're like, no, he's definitely not here. So they start setting up checkpoints and things, but Clifford's no longer anywhere near. The first night he did sleep under the Queensboro Bridge in New Westminster. And within a couple of days, he's now front page news. They track down his family, including his siblings who are away at different schools. His mom, Leona, does a TV interview crying. Just, you know, please turn yourself in. Save yourself for the prison time. Clifford Sr.'s on TV like he knows what he's facing. He might have to serve 10 years if he doesn't give himself up. I hope they get him before he does something really bad. He's done bad enough already. Those two interviews actually are the last public interviews that the Olsen family would ever make about their son. Uh-huh. Clifford obviously didn't see this because he was nowhere there was a television. He was stealing clothes and backpacks and heading into the woods. He thought the police were going to check the cities first and all of his old friends and his old haunts. But in fact, they were like, no, we're checking everywhere, including the countryside. He was definitely clever, but he didn't realize there would be dogs. Mm. And one dog in particular was named Renty. 
And Brenty, the police dog, found him hiding in blackberry bushes, which actually have a lot of thorns. So it had to have been pretty painful. Mm -hmm. And Clifford had gotten himself so stuck in the bushes that they had to physically cut him out of it. Full of thorns and a couple of dog bites because Renty was very excited. Um, They returned him back to BCP and added an additional year to his sentence because of all the good behavior. And compliance mattered more to the police than anything else. The guards and the warden actually take the blame for his escape, saying, you know, it was a riot. He'd never been in a riot before. He was probably just really scared and ran away from the violence. The prisoners oh. are like, not only is he friends with cops, but now the cops are taking his side. <laughs> he might as well just be a cop. Damn. Uh-huh. So, of course, there are now rumors that Clifford is getting special treatment. And the only way that that ends is with people trying to kill him. Yep. Clifford's in a bad place. He knows that there's no way he's going to be able to escape like normal. So one night he takes the little razor out of his out of his shaver uh, and cuts his wrists. And when the, the, the cell doors open in the morning, the guides are like, wow. Well, uh, we're going to send a doctor in about an hour. And they take him to the hospital. And, like, when they go, like, listen, we don't have anybody on site who can help you. You got to wait. He even, like, thanks the guards. He's, like, being very nice to them. Um, they end up having to transfer him to a local hospital. And while he's in the hospital, he is, of course, prospecting. They stitch him up and leave him alone in the hospital room. He steals another patient's clothes, changes in the bathroom, and walks out of the building. Three guards were sent to watch him. I don't know what they were doing. But he walked right by him. Hmm. This time, though, Clifford's like, I have a plan. I'm not just going to wander around and hope for the best. I need to leave Canada. I need to get out of Canada as soon as possible to a place where I don't have a record, i.e. America. So he's heading south. And he goes inland, avoiding major cities. He breaks into rural properties, leaving behind their valuables, but stealing things like canned food and clothes and blankets and a gun. He didn't want to hurt anybody, but he was prepared to if he had to. Unfortunately, Clifford's intelligence gets him in trouble again because he isn't stealing the things that you would normally steal. So the police are like, that's got to be him. Who else is only stealing survival supplies and heading towards the American border? The man who just escaped. Yep. So they put out Border Patrol near New Westminster. And for people who don't know, you could take a train right now from New Westminster to Seattle. It's like two hours and it only costs you 40 bucks. It's really not that far. So it's not really a surprise to the police that he's trying to get to America. The problem is they need to get to him before he is deep within America. Mm-hmm. Once he leaves like the woods of, of the northern part of, the, of America and hits a city... They won't be able to track him anymore. He can just change his name and disappear. So Clifford finally gets to the place where he's going to try and cross the border. It's like a park and there's nobody there. And he turns a corner and there are two teenagers out for a walk. He's exhausted and panicked. And later the teenagers tell the police that he didn't aim the gun at them, but he started waving it around and screaming at them that they were ruining everything. He makes them swear that they won't tell anyone anything they saw. And then he takes off running. And of course, the first thing these kids do is go to the police station and tell the police there's a madman in the woods screaming. So, of course, the police take down his description. Dark haired guy, medium size, mid 20s, messy hair. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's him. 
And so all of Border Patrol are out and they swarm that park within minutes. Clifford hears this and he lays down on the floor of the <laughs> the floor of the forest. It's not funny. I'm sorry. He covers himself with leaves and he's just perfectly still to the point where he can see the feet and the legs of the police walking by him. And the worst thing is he doesn't realize that the feet he's seeing are not Royal Canadian Mountain Police. These are Washington State police officers who have been called out and told that there was a Canadian ex-con who had entered illegally. Okay. <clears throat> Another police dog would be the one who ruined Clifford's escape. There you go. There goes and that the pupper was named Tiger. No. Mind you. Yeah. Good boy, Tiger. I can only imagine what this looks like. There are police all over the area. And then Tiger, the police dog, just kind of walks up to a pile of leaves and begins barking at it. And Clifford looks at the dog's face and just kind of sits up and gives a sigh and puts his gun down. And he's like, listen, I know I'm a son of a bitch, but I'm not a dog killer. And so they take him to Blaine, Washington to be processed. And then they return him to British Columbia Penitentiary. Now, interestingly enough, after the second escape attempt, the prisoners are kind of like, how'd you do that? There are more escapes. I'm not going to bore you with all of them. I'm just telling you the more interesting ones. Um, Virtually any time prisoners or guards begin to trust Clifford, he destroys that trust. He escaped uh, another time, which extended his sentence. Um, He started to get that sentence removed again. Um, And honestly, it looked like he was going to stay in prison forever with this process of him escaping and being put back and escaping and being put back. But ultimately, what gets him officially released is the problem with having a prison that's almost 100 years old. It was falling Mm -hmm. apart. Mm -hmm. So after Clifford's fourth escape, they had to shut down one of the wings due to structural damage. And this wasn't just like the roof is but they were having roof problems, but also electrical systems that would fail, which would um, leave the prisoners in complete darkness or the doors would just open, which we also can't have. The plumbing was constantly backing up, which was being helped by the fact that the prisoners were sabotaging the plumbing. And so they decide we're going to close a couple wings. The one, and we'll keep only the ones that are in the best shape. And the excess prisoners can be some can be sent to other facilities or temporary placement, which you usually only get when your time is done. Or some were offered early release for having a good track record. And despite the fact that Clifford was flighty, he did have an exemplary prison record. So they pull him in and they're like, listen, we're going to release you. But you have to go to your parole officer every week and stay out of trouble, which I think you know where we're going with this. (laughs) <laughs> anytime he's not at the parole officers he's out committing crime oh yeah of course like i'm, go- I'm gonna do that on my way to the parole officer <laughs> when they I'll catch him back. this time they charge him with assault armed robbery breaking and entering and forgery oh while god. drunk driving oh my god and in the car that was stolen he had a bunch of the other stuff he had recently stolen Back just to back to British Columbia Penitentiary to one of his original cells, which was a good one. The thing is, the guards actually loved it when Clifford was back in prison, because when Clifford is in prison, 
we know everything happening inside the walls of the prison. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he starts feeding the information about all the inmates. The problem is the prison is now half the size that it used to be. And it's very small, small enough that people know that he was the one who was there when certain information was discussed. Right. And the death threats start coming in. And the warden and the guards are like, this is serious. But instead of putting him in isolation, they offer him early release. You know he's going to run away again, right? <laughs> Very similar to Charles Manson. Clifford Olson Jr. has no idea how to exist in the regular world as a regular person. He is at this point completely institutionalized. But he knows how things work in prison. And he knows how to steal. And the police get it in their mind that they can kind of harness his ability to keep him out of prison. As long as they do, he does things to keep the police happy as an informant, we don't care if he's doing some petty theft. In fact, he becomes one of the best informants that the British Columbia police have at this time. He shares every detail except for the crimes that he's committing himself. And then sometimes he even drops them information about crimes where he is so that it doesn't look like he's on their payroll. But no charges ever seem to stick and he gets released every time. So the thing is, British Columbia police at this time were more concerned about the charges being cleared through the information they got from Clifford than what he was up to. And this transactional relationship actually goes on for a few years. But of course there were limits. Um, so Clifford began to shift from crimes where he had to physically be there to more cons. So instead of burglaries and muggings, now he's working fraud and forgery. There were also, these were all crimes more likely to give him money and there's less violence. At this point, he's broken the conditions of his parole hundreds of times, at least from what I calculated Ultimately, he will have over 90 convictions, a total of seven prison escapes. And out of that 25-year period, he spends about four years outside of jail, a little under 1,200 days. I actually had it wrong in the beginning. I said 1,500. I gave him benefit of the doubt. Actually, <laughs> 1,200 days is like 11-something. Um, it's not that they don't keep putting him back in prison. They absolutely keep putting him back. The misdemeanors, they let slide. But, you know, once you move on to the big things, like fraud and forgery, you got to go back for a little bit. Yeah. At this point, British Columbia prison is closed. But it's not fully decommissioned until 1980. But the prison is virtually not being used at all. So they take him to Prince Albert Penitentiary in Saskatchewan. And Prince Albert Prison was a medium security prison that ended up having to increase its clearance because some of the inmates from BCP had been sent there. So you got this weird amalgamation of a prison that's like half high security with like super restrictions. And then the other half, people just get to do whatever they want all the time. I honestly don't know if there are max and min security prisons at the same place. Usually, even if they're on the same like lot, they're normally their own confined spaces. Right. Yeah. This was together. And that's very weird. This place had loads of drugs, loads of gangs, lots of contraband. Um, and that's very weird for uh, Clifford because he's used to always being on lockdown. 
So there was never any time for like gangs bonds to be formed Mm -hmm. at BCP because they were never allowed to be that alone with each other for very long. Um, But since people at Prince Albert had all this free time, they socialized, found mutual reasons to hate each other. Clifford does the norm, you know, starts contacting the guards, makes the warden his new best friend, offers to give him information for early parole, and he kind of settles into his social hierarchy at this prison. The gangs are willing to talk to him, but since he won't declare that he's a member of any gang, that means they get tired of him pretty quickly and kind of kick him out. And they kind of put him in a place where he can't do what he's good at because he needs to see the crimes in order to be able to narc. So he can't get in good with the gangs. He does begin watching the prisoners in places where the guards don't allow, don't always watch. And within his first month, he gives the warden a list of all the drug carriers in the prison. And he goes back to Gem Pop and the guards rush in and start knocking people to the ground and ripping their clothes apart and throws people, throws the whole prison into a uproar because the addicts don't have their supply and the gangs make all their money off the addicts and everybody shuts down ranks trying to figure out who the leak is. Clifford doesn't realize his mistake until it's too late. In a low security prison, there are places that guards do not patrol all the time. And those places are very dangerous for people like Clifford. Right. The rats, the stool pigeons. There's no way that a prison has this kind of drug operation and a contraband operation. And there aren't guards who are in on it. And those cards gave Clifford's name to the gang's. And the gang cornered him one day and were like, it was you. And Clifford was stabbed seven times. And it wasn't so much that the the, the stabbings weren't meant to kill him. The fecal covered blades, however, were meant to, the the infection uh, was meant to kill him. And he actually ended up in the hospital for several months. He had multiple serious infections and then secondary infections. Just stock full of painkillers and antibiotics pretty much by the time he was healthy enough to go back into the prison population his parole was up again and the warden was just like listen he helped get the drugs out of our prison and honestly if he goes back they're probably going to kill him this time oh yeah definitely so they set him loose again i bet this time clifford is 35 years old it's about 1975 and he finds himself relying very heavily on drugs He knows he needs to kick the habit, but he's really not ready to, honestly. He slips up a couple more times, does a couple more bids in prison. Most of his white-collar crimes he never gets a conviction for. But in a pinch, he burglarizes a home. The police know it's him. They go pick him up. He does a couple more months. He ends up back at Prince Albert Penitentiary. And he escapes after only having been gone for a few weeks. At this point, he knows the prison backward and forward. By the time the guards realize he isn't in the max security side, he's already outside of Saskatchewan. He ends up heading to Richmond, um, Surrey. He has no friends, no connections, and not much money. Um, But he does steal a little bit. He rents a home, a little apartment in the new Surrey Village Apartments on King George Highway in August of 1980. At 40 years old, he's never lived by himself, ever. He gets odd jobs, very easy to hop on a labor construction site. Uh, sometimes he works as a gardener, plumber, worked on heating. He would pretty much post on little community boards that he was a handyman, and a church catches his eye, which is the People's Gospel Church in Surrey. And he walks in, and he meets a woman named Joan Hale, 
and he begs her to put the ad up on the wall. Joan was a little bit older than him, but he definitely looked a lot older than she did because time and prison. Clifford noticed she didn't have a wedding ring. And so he flirted a little bit. And Joan flirted back. And he's like, wait, there's a woman who likes me? (laughs) And she agrees to put his ad up on the little church board and they have a dinner date. And later that night, um, Joan was definitely the one who had experience in romance. Clifford had nothing other than, I guess, normal teenage heavy petting things. Thing is, Joan was recently divorced. And even in 1980, recently divorced wasn't that great of a look. He didn't tell her a whole lot about himself. He's like, you know, I was a little bit in trouble in the past. And he did get everything out of Joan, though, that he could. He, he, he pumped her for information about everything in her life, her history. And a lot of people find that flattering. And Joan's like, nobody ever, no guy ever wants to know about all the things I'm thinking. But for people like me, I find that level of attention early to be kind of alarming. Um, Because of my own experiences, but also because of situations like this. Con men, this is what they do. I mean, we've talked, we talked about this with the, you know, uh, what's his name? Raymond Fernandez, the uh, lonely heart killer. Right. and, And Martha. Like they, they pump you full information. They make you feel great. And then they rob you. And it's exactly what happened with the Tinder swindler and tale as old as time. Don't give your money to men. You just met. Please don't. But, uh, Joan finds this flattering and Clifford learns that Joan had divorced her husband because he was an abusive alcoholic who beat her quite a lot. And she had received a settlement from their divorce. And that's what she was really living off of. Um, It was by no means what she had been used to, but it was good enough for her to live off of. I don't really feel like Clifford had feelings for her, but I think he knew that if he could convince her to be with him, that he could get her. And so he kind of pressures her to get sexual with him and then pressures her to move in with him or more. He move in with her. Um, Definitely gaslighting her into thinking that she's the one who wanted sex. She's the one who was pursuing him. And I'm not saying she didn't enjoy it. Um, Clifford treated Joan with a level of respect that she wasn't used to. This is very reminiscent of what happened with Gary Ridgway um, and, and Judith. In that Judith had come from a very horrible relationship And Gary Ridgway treated her like gold. And in this way, Clifford didn't necessarily treat Joan like gold, but it was way better than her ex. And just a couple of months go by and they're living together, living in sin, as both Joan and my mother would have called it. (laughs) And what Clifford looked at as a con was now something he was starting to get kind of involved in. Um, originally he was just going to rob her and disappear and take all her money. And now he's like, well, she makes me breakfast and lunch and dinner and she really likes me. And it's really nice to have somebody like you so much. And she's over here on her side. Like he's so nice to me and he's really affectionate. And, uh, he's like, she's very agreeable. And I think the modern guys would call that submissive. Um, this is also weird because all of Clifford's prior sexual experiences are violent. 
And he has no concept of intimacy that isn't him being absolutely horrible. So now as a 40-year-old man, he's experiencing a certain gentle kind of intimacy with Joan that he didn't really know was possible. And after some time, he's like being nice to her, not because he wants to rob her, but for what she could give him. Right, yeah. He's still super selfish, and he's absolutely living off of Joan's money from her ex-husband and only working here and there whenever he feels like it. But like I said, because Joan had experienced such severe abuse, she was pretty much like, this isn't great what I'm getting right now, but it's way better. Um, Joan's like, the bar is in hell, and at least with <laughs> Clifford's, it's, it's on the floor. So, hey, better. It's on Earth. It's not on. It's not in hell anymore. <laughs> now, mind you, Clifford starts this relationship. Remember, I told you he escaped from prison a couple weeks after he had gotten taken back to Prince Albert. He is now living with this lady in a whole different city, real comfortable at this point. And he's like, "I want to explore." Not in a good way, though. Okay. I want to dibble dabble back in crime again. And no, that's not good. <laughs> no, it's not. He's like, I have my old apartment still. I can drop things off there and I can crash there if I've been drinking. And he even lets Joan know that he has the other apartment. And one day he does he doesn't show up with the rent payment. And the landlord who knows Joan is like, Yo, did Clifford t- did Clifford just forget? But today was rent day. And Joan's like, I thought he was at the apartment. And they're like, well, where the hell is he? Clever's in jail. <laughs> because a woman in town just accused him of rape. And the police have not realized that they have wanted Clifford Olson on their hands. And unfortunately, they think that the woman is not a reliable witness. And the case and Clifford's like, oh, this is going to get thrown out. But in the meantime, he's just sitting there in prison, afraid to call Joan to bail him out because who wants to explain to your girlfriend that the reason why you're in prison is because you raped a local prostitute? Um, <sighs> see, while he had been enjoying a lot of that gentle intimacy with Joan, he still had real dark thoughts about sex. And in his head, sex and violence are connected. And there is a high he gets from being violent. And he wants to feel that high. So the night of the attack, he got high on pills and goes bar hopping. And his victim said that he approached her at a bar. He was very charming. He flashed her some cash, and she thought they were going to have a mutual beneficial evening. Um, That is until they got to the hotel, and he put a belt around her neck and began punching her in the back and kidneys and beating the absolute crap out of her. Despite the fact that he wasn't the biggest guy, he did a number on this woman. And then after the fact, he sexually assaulted her and left her bloody and bruised on the floor of the motel. He later tells the police that this was entirely consensual. And he was right. The police do throw out the complaint. And they release him from prison after he had been there for two weeks. Now the entire time he's in there, he is just thinking about killing this woman. How <sighs> dare she turn me in? She got me in trouble. She almost messed up my life. Dude, dude that was all you. <laughs> in fact, he doesn't even go home to Joan first. He goes to the streets and starts talking to everybody he knows. Drug world, prostitution world, trying to track her down. And nobody knows where she is. She disappeared. Thankfully, Uh 
So he goes to Joan and he tells her a sort of sanitized version of what happened. That some woman blamed him for something he didn't do. And that's why he was in prison. And normally Joan would have been pissed. But Joan thought she had been in early menopause and found out while he was gone that she was pregnant. So as soon as he walks in the door, this is everyone swept up in the news. We're going to have a baby. And he doesn't even have to explain in depth where he was. The two start looking for a new home so they can have room for this baby. They're talking about marriage. Something that neither of them had really wanted. But now they're like, screw it. Let's do it. And they set the date for May of 1981. And that's actually where I'm going to stop because things take a very dark turn from this point forward. This was the funnier part of his life with a lot of weirdness, but he began the majority of his crimes take place between 1980 and 1981, which means the year we're about to discuss is pretty extensive and I wanted to give the victims the attention they deserve and not just gloss over who he killed. Right. So next week is where we're going to discuss the more deadly things and the actual rather ridiculous resolution to all of this. Okay. Canada, Canada did a thing that made a lot of people angry in regard to Clifford Olson. And we're going to kind of explore how that happened. I think Canada has done a couple things. With serial killers that have made a lot of people upset as well. Well, like this isn't like the hand I'm going to give you is that involved paying a serial killer to tell you where the bodies were. Oh, oh, come on! What? What? We'll learn about it next week. Time to move on. Oh my God, I'm already mad. (laughs) I knew. And that's why I was like, we have to get into how that happened. Because that's a big part of the story. And it's real wild. Oh my God. (sighs) What do you have for us today, Brian? Okay. Well, moving on, I guess. (laughs) Okay. So today's tale comes to me from... Uh, well, the main source is a TV show, but it came to me from my son. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Jaden has been watching some shows on his tablet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're cartoons, not like anything bad. Um, and you know, he trans, he, not only does he watch it on his tablet, he watches on, on the TV as well. And okay. I'm just sit- I'm sitting here watching this show with him one day, and I'm just like, yo, this show is really good because it has like a lot of mythological stuff in it, like a lot of like legends. Oh, and, cool! Like, yeah, I'm just like, this this is a cool show. What's this show called? And it's uh, I don't know if you heard of this before, but it's called Victor and Valentino, and it's mm-hmm. on Cartoon Network. Well, I think it was on Cartoon. I'm not sure if it's still on Cartoon Network or not. Okay. Um, and Victor and Valentino, it's basically, and I'm going to give you like the, the, the little short synopsis that I got on uh, ID, I, I am whatever, I am. IMDb. There you go, IMDb. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I know about IMDb because I have an IMDb page. Yeah, you do. 
<laughs> but okay, so it says the series follows two brothers. They're actually, I think they're two half brothers, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure. They're two brothers, and they're very opposite from each other. And they spend a summer with their grandma in a small town called Monte Macabre. Okay. And it's a small, mysterious town. Do they actually where- say call it Macabre or they call it Macabre? I, I think it's macabre. Because I'm like, if it's a kid, the kid might say it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a small, mysterious town where myths and legends of Latin America folklore come to life. Cool. And I'm like, oh, so I get to like get to watch a freaking cartoon about like Latin American myths and stuff like that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome. It's they definitely awesome. don't cover La Llorona, though, because that would be terrifying for children. <laughs> Look here, they do. Mm, they cover, they cover some, spooky stuff too. Yeah, yeah, it's all spooky wow. stuff. Um, and one the one episode I was watching. Um, so they they try to make this corn maze right. And they try to make a haunted corn maze, but it's not scary, of course. So their one creepy friend, she's like, hey, I know this guy who will make this corn maze extra scary for you, for everybody. Okay. And so they go and, and find this guy. He's a skeleton type of guy. He wears like this big old, like, I don't know, like a, a wheat hat. Um, and He's a scarecrow? He, he, sort of. Okay. Um, and he basically is a bone stealer. He steals cool. people's bones. Um, and they showed this in the episode of him stealing everybody's bones. I absolutely would have loved this as a child. <laughs> so would I. Uh, so this is who I am talking about today. And his the name. Bone stealer. It's actually the whistle man. But okay. it's. His his name is actually El Sibon, okay. the Whistling Man. And this is cool. Yeah, yeah, I I loved it, and I was like, I gotta talk about, I gotta talk about this. <laughs> so this comes with a a creepy pasta story attached to it. So I'm All gonna right. do that first, and then we'll go more into. That's cooler. interesting. A creepy pasta that's about is this like Slender Man, but Latin America. <laughs> Did they come up with Slender Man first? Uh, this is an old tale, so I'm going to say yes. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to start with the, the creepypasta. El Sabon, the man who whistles. That's actually what it means. Um, okay, I like it. When I was a little kid, my mother would tell me about El Sabon, or the man who whistles in English. Uh, the legend of El Sabon varies from person to person. But this is the version I grew up with, and personally, the one I find most frightening. There was once a boy who lived happily with his mother and father and grandfather in Los... Ah. Uh, <laughs> I knew oh I was going to stumble on this. <laughs> Lanos. I'm going to say that. Uh, a region in Venezuela. Is it two L's? It's two L's, yeah. Llanos. Llanos. Two L's is a Y sound, isn't I, it? I, or sometimes gonna... it's like J and a Y. Me... Somebody correct me, please. Oh. <laughs> anyway, it's a region Llanos. in Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah, Llanos. Ooh, yeah, that sounds good. Actually, one in both Colombia and Venezuela. That's confusing. Well, or actually, is it the same place? This tale actually takes place like the 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 this El Saban 
his legend takes place in Venezuela and Colombia. So I'm going to say yes, maybe. Yeah, I'm okay. It says a vast tropical grassland plain to the east of the Andes. It's in both Colombia and Venezuela. I, I yeah. guess it crosses the the country line. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We're learning so much today. <laughs> they lived a simple life of farming. Uh, however, the boy the parents raised was a li- very spoiled. Um, oh. He would not eat certain foods and would cry out until his parents pleased him. One day, the boy asked his father to hunt deer for them to eat, as the deer was his favorite. Uh, the father decided to please his son and hunt a deer for him to eat. Sadly, after hours of searching, he failed to return with anything. Ever so hungry, upon seeing that his father had returned empty-handed, he took his father's hunting knife and killed him with it. Oh my god. (laughs) At that moment, the mother and the grandfather rushed outside, only to find the boy standing over his his father's corpse. As the mother cried for her husband, the grandfather took it upon himself to punish the boy. First, he tied the boy to a tree, and with a whip, he struck his back repeatedly until he bled. Then he would squeeze lemons on his back, and finally... (laughs) They slaves. Yeah. Uh, Bad. Finally, he gave him a sack filled with his father's remains and cast him away into the plains to carry them as he as he as he was set as he oh, as his grandfather set the dogs after the child um but so before you he throw your dad's remains at the dog obviously <laughs> you obviously didn't care about him that much right yeah um but before he unleashed the dogs as the boy walked away his grandfather cursed him Ooh. I mean, I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. it says eso no se le se le hace a su padre. Maldito es maldito es pa tal la vida. Um, you probably could have found somebody on YouTube and just played that. Yeah, I know, but I wanted to do it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Got to work on your pronunciation, sir. I really do. I really. I mean, do. mine isn't it. the best for Spanish either. I've made some really bad blunders when it comes to Spanish, and I should know better because I took years and years of Spanish. <laughs> and it basically translates to "You should not have done that to your father. You will be damned for the rest of your life." Um, his grandfather yelled as he released his grip on the ropes and freed the dogs. As the dogs chased him, the boy whistled in a very distinct manner, uh, following the, the, oh. the, tr- the traditional uh, musical scale, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, t- Fa, Sol, La, C, Do, or C, D, E, F, G, A, so, B, C. Wait, so it whispers, do, 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 do. like, really? Yeah, it's, yeah it's that's like that. the whisper? That's not scary. That's, that's just a whistle. Scale. Yeah, well, I mean, any sort of sounds in the wilderness are frightening. To be fair, yeah, like Um, if you hear a whistling in the woods like that, 
I would be, it would be very odd to me as someone who spent years in chorus to hear someone singing scales <laughs> in walking the woods. through the woods. I'd be this like, is true. Are, you, are you a choir member lost? What's going on? <laughs> uh, and the, he whistled until the dog was caught up to, finally caught up to him. Um, and so the boy was cursed, left to wander the plains bringing mm-hmm. death to anyone whom he may happen to cross. Uh, unlike other nice. urban legends of my country, El Sibon does not pr- pursue a, sus- a suspe- Ugh, I cannot talk <laughs> specific brand of victims. He is regarded as an omen of death for anyone who wanders the plains at night. He would follow his victims first from afar until gradually catching up to them. He is tricky for you for for at first you will hear his whistling coming very close, prompting you to run away. And as you hear the whistling fade in the distance, you feel relief and you think that means you're safe. But in reality, the further the whistle, the closer he is. Um, he That's will have physics. <laughs> it's a he's a ghost. Who cares? he will have an old farming hat he will be very skinny but what will set him apart is that he will be carrying a large sack which clicks and clacks as he walks oh i hate it (laughs) some say that inside the sack are the bones of his latest victims but more likely they are the bones of his father he is destined to carry them forever and that is the creepy pasta. Love it. Side note: Did he say where he learned that story from? That person? Uh, yeah, it was his. Uh, I think it was his. His mother. His mother told me. I was the like, story. "Why do our parents? Is this an ethnic <laughs> thing?" They tell stories that scare the shit out of us. Like, and it's always real terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, I've talked about my my grandmother telling me about the the humanoid-esque creature in the woods that pretends to look like you and also sometimes looks like animals and mimics people and so if you hear somebody outside that sounds like somebody you think it is it's probably not them yeah 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 i'm like Uh, why do why are y'all doing this to your children this is terrible just because (laughs) Just because, but uh, yeah, like like we mentioned earlier, uh, this does come from like uh, Venezuelan and uh, Colombian uh, folklore. Since since that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's like right on the the plains, the Venezuelan plains. Um, there are two other versions of this story. Um, oh, yeah. Like the first one, the one I just told you was like one of the first versions, and then the second one is that, um. I mean, he, he has the same thing. The boy wanted to eat something. And his dad, you know, came back empty-handed hunting, and then the kid got angry and killed his dad. Um, but he killed his dad, and then he brought no one like his parents, his his mother and the grandfather didn't see this, so he just brought his dad's, uh, you know, organs to be cooked, Ooh. and. Later on, his mom found out that it wasn't an animal, and that's when the grandfather tied him to a tree, and the rest of the story is basically the same. Um, 
And the third one, um, <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> I'm ready. What's happening? Okay, so the, the boy, I'm gonna read it. The boy becoming before becoming the whistle man was a temperamental young boy who had everything he wanted, and one day he went hunting in the plains with his father. While they were walking, a twisted, a twisted tree stepped in their way. The boy asked his father to straighten it out, but the father said, No, a, tis, a twisted tree never straightens. You know that. After that, the boy told his father, If you always knew it, why did you let me grow that the way I am, like a twisted tree? <laughs> now I will never be able to change the way I am, and it's your fault. Okay. Um, then the boy killed his father, brought back, you know, his, his father's stuff and gave it to his mother to cook. Um, the mother found out that it wasn't an animal. Um, so she talked to her father-in-law and, you know, that story is the same as, okay. you know. All right, and that and that's how it ends. Everything everything ends the same with the grandfather tying him up to the tree and then whipping his back, and he has to carry a sack of his father's remains. Um, okay. So the legend says that he became a three meter tall boy with long legs, who is seen during dry season at the top of the trees playing with dust, and. <laughs> And during the raining season, seasons, um, like around the month of May, at any time, uh, anywhere, roaming, he's 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 seen roaming um, with a thirst for vengeance, hunting drunk. Like his main victims are drunk men. Um, he hits he hits them with a stick until he kills them. Um, hmm. He sucks their belly button. Sucks on their belly button to extract the alcohol from their bodies, um, and then he eats the rest of them, leaving like just bones left. And then all, all while he's whistling his scales, <laughs> okay. he does it. He he does it ascending and he does it descending. So mm-hmm. you you just hear the, the scales going up and down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. That and is yeah. so weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so weird. <laughs> I can't get past the fact that it's just so weird. <sighs> oh, goodness. Um, but yeah, uh, so if you hear the whistling and it's close by, that means he's far away. But if you hear it far away, that means he's he's really close to you and you should fucking run. Um yeah, I don't know how you move in that situation. It just Again, sounds like you're screwed and you should just like sit down and cry. <laughs> sit down and just wait for it to get far away so he he gets to you. Um It's about right. It's how it feels. Yeah. So a Venezuelan poet and writer, uh his name is oh god, these names. I'm sorry. <laughs> his name is Damaso uh Delgado. Delgado? Um, Delgado. Yeah, that's the that's last name I know. Uh, and he was the first one to write the story of the Whistle Man. And he wrote this back in 1966. And he, I guess he 
Yeah, and I guess he he recorded it in 1967 and it recorded it broadcasted all over the country uh, on the radio. Yeah, so mm-hmm. and this was in Venezuela, where where it's like the legend became famous. Um, he uh, Damaso, he's like no, I've I've heard this this guy before. I've heard someone like whistling, and yeah, he didn't die. Yes, you know why? Wow. There's there's one weakness of El Saban, and that is the sound of dogs barking. Oh, see, so, now you should have led with that. <laughs> no, if if he because you know since that was like his demise was having the dogs chase after him. Oh, so he's scared. Yeah, he's scared of dogs, especially so, dogs barking at him. Okay, okay, I like that. So, Damaso, he's like, this is how I survived, because there were dogs around that started barking, and he just, you know, El Saban ran away. Do Uh, coyotes count? I don't know, because they do like a little yip bark. Okay, it's not enough. (laughs) I don't know. But, um... Just trying to survive here. Yeah. So this is, I'm going to give you like the, the little poem that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, one fateful night in, in the, Venezuelan, the Venezuelan plains, an enraged father unleashed a true tragedy. Father, I've told you not to bring that whore into the family. This is a different Whoa. tale already. This is a different tale already. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh. I'm okay. <laughs> okay. Who is talking? Is this grandpa? I'm pretty sure it's grandpa. Grandpa, it's not her fault that they gave birth to a devil child. Right. It's your genes too. And obviously, since you can curse people, you got the abilities in the family. <laughs> this is true. Uh like father, like son. The young man couldn't change contain his rage. And so he hit his father a bit of his own medicine. Mm. Um, when the boy's grandfather found out what happened, oh no, so it was, it was the dad. Apparently this is a different story. He brought somebody home who he wasn't supposed to. The kid did, and then the father got upset. <clears throat> and then the young man killed his dad. Um, and then the grandfather found out what happened. He punished him like people used to used to punish. He cursed him to wander without rest for all eternity and handed him over to the dogs so they could finish him off. The story does not end there. The boy revived and he continued to wander the Sabanya, uh, carrying his father's remains in a bag, murdering womenizing womenizing men, always whistling his infernal melody. When you hear it close by, he's far away. And when you hear it far away, it's close. To this day, mm-hmm. it continues to happen in the Venezuelan plains. So, yeah, he attacks drunk men and womenizers as well. Womanizers, womanizers. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, like, that's basically it, but, like, in, on a TV show. 
<laughs> he's a skinny skeleton guy, right? And he basically just steals the bones. Like, he, he will steal your bones, all your bones. He'll whistle and, like, use magic to take all the bones out of your body and oh. just put them in his sack. And, like, I guess he had, like, some type of whistle contest at the end of the... You know, because it's a kid show, so... Um, at the end of the episode, they, like, make this, like, whistle contest and uh, to win all the bones back from everybody. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, like, this is what happens. He takes bones of womanizers and drunk people and he just puts them in a sack. <clears throat> and if you hear him whistling, don't be around to hear him whistling anymore. I don't know. Um... But yeah, I don't know. It, like this, it was just a, a a. He's a very interesting person in like in this folklore. Like, it just caught my eyes, and, and like I can show you a picture. Like if you, all right, I will show you a picture of the one that um the original the original um artist did or the original um poet, I should say. And save and send and discord because yeah, that's where I send all my creepy. <laughs> I just looking at our our <laughs> stream of weird photos you sent me. <laughs> weird old cryptids left and right. Weird old thick boys. Uh, where are you? In here somewhere. I was, mm. The way things saved. Oh, there you go. Okay. So I say the way things saved to my computer. There he goes. Look at this guy. <clears throat> He's a skinny guy, running around with shorts on, hairy legs. Gaunt face. He has carrying a sack that you can see bones sticking out of the back. It's very odd. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> but that's, that's, uh, who I got for today. Um, hope y'all well, enjoyed it. That, that was a time. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to be back. <laughs> yeah. And listen, had so much fun today in a strange way. I know some people don't like uh, funny true crime podcasts. I try to temper the, the seriousness with a little bit of humor here and there. But thanks so much for listening. If you're still here, uh, I am actually going to put... The Thick Dids back up on a limited sale for people who are interested. Cause so the first two, both uh, the Asquatch and Mothman, our our bootyful Mothman will be back <laughs> on sale on their stickers and other fun things at WhenKillersGetCaught.shop. So that hopefully by the fall we will have a new Thick Did ready for you all. Oh, yes, we will. 
We'll have more. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> I've been getting questions. Oh, like, when are you going to order another one? Like, just, just, <laughs> when are we gonna have I, another thicked? Yes, it, believe me, I got y'all. Nice. And uh, yeah. we'll be ready next week with the rest of the ridiculous story of Clifford Olson. Yes. Have All a good right. weekend. See you.